You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. You know, last week, Pastor Brett talked to us a little bit about Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. Paul was at that time trying to talk to us about how the, his apostolic ministry came to him. He started t- he was trying to talk to us about the, the way that Jesus came to him directly and gave him the gospel message directly and commissioned him as, a, as an apostle directly to the Gentiles. And he'd been doing that for three years before he ever met one of the apostles who actually walked with Jesus in life. And he was talking about that in part to defend himself as a first-rate apostle, as a, as a first-hand recipient of the gospel. So he mentions, it was only after three years that I went into Jerusalem, and then I met with Peter for 15 days, and I met with James, the brother of Jesus, but those are the only two I met, and then I was back out on the mission field bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, but now in chapter 2, he's jumped forward 14 years in verse 1 to his second visit to Jerusalem and his second encounter with the apostles, with the other apostles. Now, there were four total visits documented in Acts where, uh, where Paul goes into Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. And in today's passage, we are reading about his second visit. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation, meaning that the Lord God sent him, commissioned him to go back to Jerusalem. He wasn't summoned. He would be summoned at his third visit uh, from Antioch in order to represent um, uh, the Gentiles in a council. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in this second visit, it was the Lord himself that sent him to Jerusalem. So he went up before them, and he privately, he says, though privately, he went before those who seemed influential. So he gathered an audience with the church leaders in Jerusalem at this second visit, and he gathered them privately, a very loving act that Paul does, because he wants to talk to them about this very matter that we've been reading about in Galatians where there are the, there's this group of people who have been called the Judaizers who have come from Jerusalem and they're going throughout the churches in Galatia trying to undermine Paul's ministry of salvation by faith alone and they're saying, no, you must be circumcised. You must first become a Jew if you want to receive the Jewish Messiah. And so they were trying to heap the law of Moses on top of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ and Paul, seeing this and writing this letter to these people in the churches of Galatia, he has a flashback to his second visit in Jerusalem, and he says, I, I've seen this before. I, not, 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 not again, Paul's saying. After 14 years, I went into Jerusalem, and I thought we settled this. We, we, we talked about this, and now they're leaving the religious center of Judaism, and they're going out to the churches that I planted, and they're taking this message, which we've already contended over, and they're taking it out to you. Oh, no, let me tell you how I handled this the first time right in the heart, right in the heart of the land where this message of salvation by works and obedience to the law has come from. He says, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation, and I set before those who seemed influential in the church the gospel that I have been proclaiming among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, I think that we can read this in one of two ways. I actually think he means it in both ways. Remember, last week, Pastor Brett taught us that one of the justifications that Paul makes for his apostolic ministry is that he received it from no man. He said, I I wasn't a second-hand recipient. I didn't go to the apostles, and they taught it to me. I am an apostle. It was given to me by Christ. 
So he's not going to the apostles primarily to receive anything from them. In fact, he's going to say that, that I didn't go, didn't add anything to me. But he said, but I didn't go to ensure that I hadn't been running in vain. So what does he mean by that? Well, it means that this gospel of, this false gospel of the law of Moses layered on top of the gospel of grace had already come to his attention. And it was already coming out of Jerusalem. And so when he went back into Jerusalem, he wanted to talk to the apostles there and ensure that his running wasn't in vain, that they were not propagating a false gospel that was going to undermine the one that was given to him by Jesus. In other words, he wasn't going to make sure that his gospel was right. He was going to make sure that theirs was. He was going to make sure that he's trying to ensure for their sake that his gospel would not be undermined because of laziness on, a fact, on, on the part of the apostles in Jerusalem to actually stomp out this false gospel that was propagating among them. He was going to check on Peter. And so he gets there, and he says, I went there, and I, and I brought before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or I had not run in vain. And this is the result in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so he's pleasantly surprised. He gets there to make sure that this isn't happening in vain. He says, we're preaching the same gospel here, right, guys? He's ready to correct if that's not the case. And, he, and he's got Titus with him, who is a Gentile convert. And he's got Barnabas with him, who's, a res- who's respected among the leaders in Jerusalem. And the three of them go, and, and, it, come, and it comes up. Does Titus need to be circumcised? And he says, the result of that conversation was that even Titus, who was with him, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So all's good, right? Paul's gone into Jerusalem. He's checking with the other apostles. We're all preaching the same thing here, right? You don't need to become a Jew to, be, to receive salvation, right? And Titus was not forced to become a Jew, and so all is good, right? No. Verse 4 Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So there is a group of people present who had snuck in. He had called those who seemed influential. He, he gathered the pillars to himself. He gathered the apostles. But there were people who snuck in to this conversation, people who, who heard it. They were spying out our freedom, he says of them. And he calls them false brothers. And he said that their intentions in sneaking in was so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, I can most assuredly say to you, they didn't come in saying, we have come to bring you into slavery. And I'm sure that's not what they believed that they were doing, coming to bring anybody into slavery. They were passionate about receiving freedom. And to, in their minds, to receive freedom, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to be a Jew. And so they're, they're trying to sneak out, snuff out this message because they believe this is a false message. And so they are motivated to come heralding liberation, heralding freedom, heralding emancipation. But the message that they are heralding is a message of slavery. And so at the heart of my sermon this morning is to help you think through the difference between proclaiming emancipation and actually possessing liberty. The difference between proclaiming emancipation and actually possessing liberty. Because we have two groups of people in this passage, both of them proclaiming emancipation. Both of them are carrying messages of freedom in their minds. 
One, an apostle carrying the true gospel from Jesus Christ, and another carrying a false gospel of salvation by works, salvation by obedience to the law. Both of them believing they're carrying message of emancipation. In the existence of people who can proclaim emancipation and have their message actually be a message of bondage and of slavery means that there's a category of person that exists and you need to assess whether or not you are among them and you need to be able to determine whether or not somebody speaking to you is from among them because here they're called false brothers. So they regarded themselves as brothers. I'm sure they didn't call themselves false brothers. Paul is calling them false brothers. Can you tell when somebody comes heralding a message of emancipation who does not actually possess liberty? And can you tell if you are a person who would proclaim of yourself, I, I, I possess liberty, but the emancipation that you're declaring doesn't come with it liberty at all, but it's actually a message of slavery? How can we know? Of these people, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9, he said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he's the, he has reason for confidence in his flesh, I have more, Paul said. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, Paul said. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's for his sake that I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The message that Paul was contending with was a message that said you must receive circumcision if you are going to be saved, and he was saying, no, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And for you to herald any other message of emancipation is to be a false brother, Paul says. He says of them that he did not yield to them for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. When we think about the idea of being able to declare emancipation or proclaim emancipation but not actually possess liberty, I want to give you guys like a thought exercise to think about how this is possible. And so we don't have to actually leave the pages of American history to try to come up with a thought exercise here. You think about the, the Emancipation Proclamation, right? January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln makes the Emancipation Proclamation. And, and on that day, he declares that from this day forward, it is no longer legal for you to possess a slave in the Confederate States. Everybody's free, right? He's proclaimed emancipation. Right? Not right. Recently, a new federal holiday has been added. It's, it's been uh, celebrated among African Americans for some time. We call it Juneteenth. 
They celebrated June 19th, 1865, nearly two years later, 2,000 Union troops show up in Galveston Bay, Texas to bring the message that the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is in effect, and this is like the last people group, 250,000 Texan slaves have received the news that they've been liberated by a executive decree. So freedom was proclaimed, and yet two years longer, a quarter of a million people remained enslaved. Because proclaiming freedom doesn't actually mean possessing it. Well then, now that they made it to Texas, we got, now we have it, right? Freedom, right? No. 16, or six months later, the 13th Amendment is ratified and making it illegal to own slaves in all of the states in the Union finally bringing New Jersey, Kentucky, and Delaware under the law. Because you remember that in the Emancipation Proclamation, he was only dealing with the Confederate states, and so there were still three states, part of the North, where it was legal to own slaves. So kind of three-step process now, and now finally, that, uh, that we've, we've declared it in these three different ways. We declared it in the Emancipation Proclamation. We declared it by the force of law as we enter Texas two years later. We declare it by ra ratifying a bill with the 13th Amendment. Now we're good, right? Well, still really now because we left a loophole in the 13th Amendment, right, saying that it's only legal to possess a slave as a punishment for a crime, right? And so now as long as you've committed a crime, you've been arrested, now you can be a slave as a punishment for that crime. Slave labor is still legal in, in that sense. Last year, nearly $11 billion in goods and services were produced by prison workers who received just pennies for their wages. The U.S. has just 4% of the world's population and yet 16% of the world's prisoners, and they're producing billions of dollars worth of goods and services. In fact, at one point, the 13th Amendment was so common that in 1898, the state of Alabama had three-fourths of its revenue produced by slave labor, despite the fact that slavery had been abolished, right? You can declare emancipation and not possess it, right? Do you think that somebody making a license plate for a penny a day feels free? Think it through. Does liberty come in stages in Christianity? Does liberty come by force of law? Does liberty come from obedience? You see, in the, in the world's economy, and even American economy, the, the way that this works is it's not enough for somebody just to say that you're free because you say I am, and this guy says I'm not, and he's got the bigger weapon, and so I remain a slave. 2,000 troops had to show up to free me. I need somebody else to act on my behalf in order to actually help me to possess the freedom that they proclaim. Well, in the 13th Amendment, again, I'm not, not really making a comment on the 13th Amendment. I'm making a comment on the, on the economy of the Christian gospel. But the 13th Amendment shows us that you can lose that freedom that you supposedly have gained by lack of obedience. If you don't keep the rules, back into slavery we go in the world's economy of justice, that's one of the ways that we work. And so we have a people who have vacillated in this country back and forth between freedom and slavery, freedom and slavery. If I don't do good works, I can lose my freedom, right? So it's super appealing and super believable if I come to you and say to you, 
listen, to keep your freedom, you need to keep the rules. That's like embedded in American thought. To keep your freedom, you've got to keep the rules. Such that your, uh, your ears are so tuned to accept and receive that message because it's so embedded in the culture that you were raised in that when a false brother comes among you and starts to apply this type of thinking to, the Christian, ju to Christian justice, to Christian liberation, to Christian salvation, they say to you, to keep your freedom, you've got to keep the rules. You swallow that down with a smile and you say, thank you, brother, for that reminder. And you throw out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's no like, surprise that in the United States of America that the, that the Catholic Church, which weds works to grace for right standing with God, is the largest denomination. That's no surprise. It's no surprise that within, um, re within Reformed tr traditions, within Protestant traditions, that the legalistic side of things has grown massive. I mean, do you guys like remember uh, there was like a wave in the 90s where it was like you would bring like your CDs and you'd have like a bonfire at your youth groups and like burn all your rock music? Do you remember that? Do you remember like the culture of shame in some of the churches that you guys were raised in? The culture of always bringing into question your salvation based on your performance this week? Anybody in this room been like baptized like seven times? Anyone in this church like prayed the prayer like 12 times, walked the aisle and knelt down, gone to youth group conferences and been saved again and again? Why? I'm preaching to Americans right now because of the, the fabric of the, Amer the state of the American church right now. We hear the false gospel from false brothers of layering the law on top of the gospel of grace, and we believe it. Some of you even now, as I start to talk about this, are like shifting in your seat a little bit, like, I feel like you're telling me I can sin. Because the idea that, like, the only reason why you wouldn't sin is if there was, like, threat of force or threat of shame or threat of disapproval, that's, like, the only reason why you wouldn't sin, as if Jesus Christ living in you isn't sufficient reason to lay down your sin and to walk in righteousness with him. What if I told you, when you sin, you won't lose your salvation, and then I didn't add any caveats to that? What happens in you? 80% of you are, are okay. What about the other 20%? They're like, well, what if I told you that you can't sin your way out of salvation? What if I told you that you don't law keep your way into keeping your salvation? How does it go down? I preach it every week. I hope it goes down easy. But when I say it direct like that, it makes you squirm a little bit, doesn't it? So what, shall we just sin all the more that grace may abound? Well, by no means. But think it through. On what basis has your nature been changed? Why lay down your sin? Because you've been made free. Paul contends with these speakers of a 
false gospel. He says, we didn't yield to them for even a moment. We contended with them so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Do you understand, Gentile, how much you owe to Paul? The Holy Spirit in Paul. I mean, the world has tried to snatch this gospel up every five seconds since the moment that Christ lands on this earth. I mean, they tried to crucify him. They tried to spread false information about his resurrection. When they couldn't keep that out, they tried to keep the law on top of it. Paul didn't yield for even a moment for your sake that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, this is verse 6, the other apostles, what, but what they were makes no difference to me. Paul says, God shows no partiality. Or Paul says, those I, I say who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. We had the same gospel. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry the same way that he worked through me. Verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars of the church in Jerusalem, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me their right hand in fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But they asked that we remember the poor, the very thing that I was already eager to do. We read about this in Acts 11. The reason why Paul went to Jerusalem the second time was on a mercy mission. He had taken up an offering many gifts from the many churches that had been planted, and he was bringing it to the church in Jerusalem because they were in a season of famine. And so he brought gifts for the poor in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches. That's why he was there. And so he meets up with the pillars of the Jerusalem church, the other apostles, and they have to sort out this issue of circumcision. And, and so they sort that out, and, and they, put their, they give them their hand in friendship, and they say, just don't forget the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do, the very thing I was there to do. And so, so I went ahead with that mission. Do you realize like, how much was at stake in that argument, in, in that argument over Titus? Like, he went up, and the apostles were good with it in the private mission, but then there were others who came in to spy out the freedom and to contend. And he said, we didn't budge for even a moment. Do you realize, like, what, what was at stake if Paul would have budged? All indications, if we look at Paul's life, is that if they would have appealed to Titus in love or to Paul in love and said, like, for the sake of not being a stumbling block to the Jerusalem church, will you have him circumcised? He probably would have done it. Like, Paul was not above like encouraging people even to be circumcised if it helped them to work through the gospel. But the fact that they were saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, he could not budge even one inch. There was a lot at stake in them concluding that Titus was in without becoming a Jew was monumental and it would be solidified at his third visit when he's called to a council meeting, which I'll tell you about in a minute. You remember in um, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking and he says to these Jews who were believing in him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says, I am the, the way and the truth and the life. So when he talks about the truth, Jesus is talking about himself, not just truth about him, but like him. He says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said back to him, we're offspring of Abraham. 
we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. And yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And the Jews said back to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And that's not what Abraham did. Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so the Jews said to him, now we know you've got a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, the message of the gospel that Jesus brought was a message that was riding on the truth himself, on the person, like the, the one from whom, the, like from his mouth proceeded the creation of all things. He's not the truth, like the story about him is true, although that's also true. He is in and of himself the way and the truth of the life. He is the word, and from the word proceeded the creation of all things. It's on him that your salvation is riding. You're like, like you're set free by the truth, by a person. Do you understand that the truth that sets you free is a person and not a story, that you don't ascend to it, so like your faith is a work, as if like by constructing a right sequence of beliefs, I save myself by thinking right. The truth is a person. You were saved by a person, by God himself incarnate, Jesus laying down his life for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. And he's coming back for you. This gospel message is the story of events that have actually taken place. When we say that you're saved by faith alone, Mercy's Door, what we're talking about is you being united to those events by faith. So that an actual person and the things that he actually did, God in human flesh, become your story received by faith. You don't add to it. And the idea that you have to add to it, the idea that like I keep myself right with God or I make myself right with God by adding to the works that Jesus did for me, it makes a mockery of his life for you. He already fulfilled the righteous requirements of God for perfect living. He lived for you. So if you continue to heap the works of the law upon your righteousness, you're saying there was something insufficient about the work of Christ that he did on your behalf in his life. That is a false gospel. And some of you are like, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Like repent of that lesser righteousness that you want to heap on to, your, to the true gospel and know they're just shackles and you've been set free. And still some others of you, I know, are not so much about heaping on righteousness you can add to the life of Jesus, but you are about beating yourself as if there was something insufficient about Christ's death for you. Like the punishment that he took absorbing the wrath of God was not sufficient to pay for the penalty of your sin. So you've got to punish you. Don't tell me you've never said, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. How arrogant. Your standard of righteousness on you is higher than God's. 
he looks at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and says, you are perfect. You have been made perfectly clean. You are perfectly righteous. They're like, it is finished. And you're like, no, it's not. One more stripe for me. Your self-punishment and your self-righteousness are both mockeries of the life and death of Christ. We turn from, these are lesser forms of righteousness. This is salvation by faith plus works. Jesus said, the truth will set you free and he himself is the way and the truth and the life. And so we're all good now, right? We'll know. We're getting there though. So this is how things went down when Paul went to Jerusalem, but then he jumps and he fast-forwards in his mind to the time that Peter came to Antioch, which was Paul's turf. So when he says now in verse 11, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came and drew back, and he, separ- he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews started acting hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so we have like one of the first major conflicts in church history documented here. Paul says, I went into Jerusalem to contend for the true gospel and walked out feeling pretty good. Me and Peter stacked hands, gave me his hand in friendship. But then when he comes to Antioch among the Gentiles, this comes up again. And when it comes up, Peter starts acting like a hypocrite. He was fine to eat with the Gentiles until those Judaizers showed up. And when members of the circumcision party showed up, he pulled back and started acting like we can't eat with them. Once again, the gospel was at risk. And so, Peter, and so Paul contends with Peter to his face. And Peter knew better. You guys might know the story from Acts 10. There's this guy in Caesarea. His name's Cornelius. He's a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And an angel visits with Cornelius, and he tells him to send some guys to Joppa to go find Simon Peter. And he tells him exactly what house Peter's going to be in. So he sends those guys. And while those guys are traveling to find Peter, a vision comes to Peter, preparing him for their arrival. And it says this in Acts 10, Peter was hungry. He's always hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And while, he was, and while they were preparing it, Peter fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open. He saw something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came to him a voice that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and, and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And Peter didn't know what the vision meant, and so then the the Spirit comes to him again and speaks to him, and he says uh, to look out for the men who are looking for him, to rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, because it's he who sent them. And so he goes with them. And when he gets with, to Cornelius, uh, Cornelius gathers up all of his friends and family, and they all get together with Peter. And, he, and Peter says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
And Cornelius replies to him and says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded to speak by the Lord. And this is what Peter says. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened all throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. How do you get forgiveness of sins? According to Peter, believe in him. And while Peter was preaching these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard this word, and the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter knew he was given a vision directly by God to stop calling things that Jesus calls clean, unclean, or common. He was sent among the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. He got to see them, have the Holy Spirit descend upon them in real time, and he got to participate in baptizing them. And this was all before this event that Paul is talking about when he gets to Antioch and he starts separating from them because he's afraid of the circumcision party. And so what I'm saying is Peter was not confused. Peter wasn't believing a false gospel. Peter knew the true gospel. He was sure of it. He'd seen it, and Peter was afraid. And it's as simple as that. And Peter was afraid, and why wouldn't he be? The church at Antioch came to exist in the first place because Stephen gets stoned. A huge persecution arises in Jerusalem such that 10,000 people are displaced from their homes. Some of them go up to Antioch. They plant the church there, and then that becomes the sending church for like the whole Roman Empire. So when Peter is there, like, he, like Peter's very, he saw them crucify Jesus. He, saw, he, he knows they stoned Stephen. He knows how this, why this church even exists. Of course he's afraid. Peter's often afraid. But what does Peter do when he's afraid? He behaves in a way that is not in keeping or in step with the gospel. And Paul saw that and he said, danger, danger. And he had to rebuke Peter to his face in front of all presence. And again, the gospel was preserved for you, for the Gentile. And I ask you, some, some of you as Gentiles are acting like Jews. You're not trying to keep the laws of the Torah or the laws of the Mishnah even, but you've taken upon yourself a whole different set of laws for your righteousness. You've, let, you've, you've either allowed the secular culture to tell you what you must believe and, and do, to be righteous, and some of it is desperately wicked, and you're calling evil good and good evil because you're trying to get the approval of man. And, 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 and if Paul were here, he would say, danger, 
danger. You are not walking in step with this gospel. This is not in keeping with the gospel. It is going to lead the Gentiles astray. And some of you, not so much with, your, with, with taking your cues from the world, you're taking your cues from the modern Judaizer, from the Christian legalist, the false brother who wants to tell you that you're made right by your obedience, and you're saying, I'm not going to associate with this person over here because of his sin. And you're forgetting that Jesus, the friend of sinners, ate with sinners and tax collectors. And you forget your own sin, which if it was disqualifying from participation in the body of Christ, you'd have been done out a whole long time ago. Hypocrisy. 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 It was in Peter, and it is in you, and it is in me. And that's why we look to the foundation of the apostles and the truth in Jesus Christ, and we say, whenever we hear departure from this, we say, this is not in keeping with the gospel, and we point back to Jesus, and I ask you, do you have ears to hear it? Can you tell the true gospel from a false one? And can you tell when you're believing the true gospel from a false one? I tell you, proclaiming emancipation is not the same as possessing freedom. Lots of people are going to tell you how you can be free, and you are going to tell people how they can be free. And I'm asking you, are you actually heaping chains upon people, or are people actually heaping chains upon you? Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take upon me my yoke for my yoke is light. His burden is light. Listen, if you are a Christian, know that all the just requirements of God were met in Christ Jesus. Do you understand this? Do you really understand this? Is all of your striving to, for obedience about making yourself right or is it about worship? Do you love him and you are loved by him and therefore you want to be like him and you want to be with him? Or are you trying to become something in order that you can receive acceptance that is already yours freely in Christ Jesus? I tell you once and I'll tell you a thousand times, you are made right by faith alone in Christ alone. So my prayer for you this morning, Mercy's Dora, as we conclude is that you would think about the testimony of the apostles. You think about the journey that the gospel in its pure form took to come to your ears. You think about like the fact that I can even know what I'm talking about when I open this thing is because of the work of the Lord through the apostolic ministry to labor to contend off the false gospels of the world so that he could protect it and defend it for you. It has traveled 2,000 years to get to your ears in its pure form. And I want to encourage you and even warn you, don't be the generation that tosses it out and, and trades it in for a false gospel like the Judaizers did in order to fit in with the world because of fear of the modern circumcision party. You're afraid that one side or the other is going to spit you out because of the gospel you proclaim? Let them spit you out because your message is the message of freedom. Let's thank the Lord for that message now.